The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. In Matthew 5.20, he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, as far as people were concerned, uh, Pharisees, scribes, they were the most righteous people in their society. So this was very hard for them to understand this saying. How can Jesus require higher righteousness than of these people? So Jesus starts to unmask the self-righteousness, the self-righteousness that these people have by showing it's only external, showing only righteousness, and the only, by showing the, that the only righteousness that's acceptable to God is the purity of the heart. Now, it's important we understand it's inside us is what really counts. That's what God looks at and judges. You know, there's a saying that says, it's been said, the child delights in what he has, a youth delights in what he does, an adult delights in what he is. And I hope that's true for those who are mature Christians. It's far more important to be something than it's to have something or to do something. But the most important thing is to be pure. So we have to change the inside before you change the outside. Without that purity inside, the outward life makes no difference. Know how many good works you have. Because dad, uh, God's evaluation takes place in the heart. You know, in Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as man thinks in his heart, so is he. It's a wonder I didn't turn to a girl back in high school, but for he is. So what's in our heart, that's what we are. And that's what God is going to judge. But Jesus gives us here a second illustration, the heart of righteousness, and it has to do with adultery and sexual sin in general. As we continue in Matthew 5, verses 27-28, he says, You have heard that it was said of those of the old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what Jesus is saying here, you can't have your Kate and Edith too. In verse 27, that's the adultery part. But on top of that, he says you can't go window shopping. You guys know what window shopping is? You walk into a mall, you see something in the corner of your eye, and you're, oh, what is that? And you start lusting for it. I don't want that. What's the next step? If you're not careful, you're inside that store spending money that you don't have for things you don't need, right? So he says, you can't window shop. And just as we saw with the illustration of sin of murder, this illustration also starts with quotation from the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20:14, it says, "You shall not commit adultery." So as we see in both cases, the Jewish tradition, the rabbis, 
All this tradition was based on the law of Moses, at least superficially. And the sixth commandment, which we talked about last Sunday, it protects the sanctity of life. And this commandment protects the sanctity of marriage. And those who rely just on external righteousness break both of these commandments because in their hearts, they're already breaking those laws. So when we get angry with people, when we hate people, God says you're a murderer. And when we lust after someone sexually to fill our desire, we commit adultery. Now, before we begin, I want to say that there's nothing wrong with sex and so forth as far as it's within marriage and how God designed it. God created sex. So, you know, we're talking about safe sex and all that stuff. Sex is not meant to be dangerous. I know sometimes pastors don't want to talk about those issues, but we have to because it's in the Bible. It's in Scripture, and I'm not going to be skipping over it. So sometimes we're like, whoa, close the ears. No. We need to talk about these things because... You see, the devil is a pervert. All he does is takes those natural God-given desires that have been meant for good and just twists them and perverts them. So anger and sexual lust are the two most powerful influences on mankind. And the person who gives them reign will soon be controlled by them than rather being in control. So in verses 27 through 30... I want to break it down in three categories. He focuses on the deed of adultery. We're going to look at the desire behind it and deliverance from it. Now, the deed is pretty much very obvious in verse 27. He says, you have heard that it was said, those of the old, you shall not commit adultery. And it's repeated throughout the Old Testament, and it's repeated in Deuteronomy 5.18. It says, you shall not call, shall commit adultery. It's very clear the Bible leaves absolutely no question about this particular sin. There's no gray areas. The deed is condemned. It's an evil deed. The Bible is very clear about it. Leviticus 8, uh, 18 describes all those things you can't do. You know, It talks about you can't lay with a man as a woman. You can't lay with your sister, your brother. All those things are in Leviticus 18. And we're not going to read all of it. You can write it down. But in Leviticus 20... He gives us the penalty, and the penalty for committing adultery is this. In Leviticus 20.10, says, The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, an adulterer and adulteresses shall surely be put to death. So we see the Bible treats this as a very serious crime ending in death for the one who committed it. So we see the deed is condemned by God. And these rabbi traditionalists or, you know, whatever, the legalists, they were partly right when they said you should not commit adultery. They weren't wrong. And he's not saying that, hey, I'm totally disregarding what they said. This is what I'm telling you. They were right. It was evil. God said, don't do it, don't do it. It was a serious crime and still is. Now, I want to clear up kind of what it means necessarily here. Here it talks about 
unlawful intercourse with the spouse of someone else. Uh, that's basically the technical meeting of adultery, sexual relationship with somebody else's spouse and so forth. Now, the verb here in Matthew obviously is a command, and it applies to kind of generally to everything. Not only engage in sexual activity, someone else's spouse, but it, this word is used in a general way because if you think about it, it says, looks at a woman. It doesn't say if she's married, if she's not married. So it's, it's kind of a broad term. In other places, it's translated as this harlotry. It's basically, it's illicit sexual relationships outside of marriage. Now, the commandment goes farther than that, too. We're not going to discuss it because we'll be here all day, but it also includes homosexual activity and all those kind of things that we call an alternative lifestyle. It extends further and includes this behavior. Again, he says anybody looks on any woman. In Bible, it says in Hebrews 13.4 that the marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. God will judge those things. And we see that it's not just the physical deed. We'll talk about that. But now we're talking about the deed. God will judge that. But it's also the lust in your heart. You see, this sexual sin is all over the Bible. New Testament, Old Testament, it's nothing new. I'm going to give you a couple of verses here that all over the place just encourages it because, again, it's one of those strong sins that the devil uses to lure people in, puts that on the hook. Now, he's using the illustration, here says a man, but woman guilty of it too. In Acts 15, 29, we read that you abstain from things offered to idols, blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. So why is he writing that? Because it was a problem. In 1 Corinthians 10, 8, Paul writes, let us not, nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. That's referring to when Israel was leaving Egypt and they created their own God, little cow made out of gold, started worshiping it. That's not the only sin. They started committing immoral acts, sexual acts, and 23,000 fell. That's in, you can read about that in Exodus 32, I believe, verse 6. And then in, Paul also writes to 1 Thessalonians in verse, chapter 4, verse 3, says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. What's our sanctification? That you should abstain from sexual immorality. Well, I'm good with that, right? We're all good with that outwardly. But Jesus goes further. In the book of Revelation, it says that fornicators, adulterers, whatever word you want to use, will not enter in God's kingdom. In Revelation 21, it says, but the cowardly, unbelieving, murderers, sexually immoral, and so on, sorcerers, idolaters, old liars, they will not enter the kingdom, but will die a second death. So it's a very serious crime that God judges. And in Deuteronomy 22.22 22 says, If a man found 
lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with this woman and the woman, so you shall put, to, put away the evil from Israel. So they were right, the Pharisees and the scribes, that they saw the deed, they saw it just as God did. The law is very clear, and folks, it is very, it, it is still applying today. You know, we come to a place in our society where even churches are guilty of this. They do not teach it. They do not talk about it. As a matter of fact, one time I was preaching here early, early when I came here. I was preaching on the Ten Commandments, and I was told not to preach about this sexual immorality and all that kind of stuff but it, because it puts people off. And I was told that, you know, Everybody is these days does it. I mean, middle school, high school, who hasn't doesn't? But you see, folks, and I'm not trying to be all biblical or scholarly with you. Just because the culture says acceptable doesn't mean we adjust. You know, I believe the pastor's job is to feed the sheep, right? When when uh, Jesus came to Peter at the, at, the, at the shore, says, asking him three times if he loves him. And Peter says, I, you know you love me and all that stuff. He says, feed my sheep. He doesn't say, feed my goats. So we should not change the menu when goats come. Goats come. They can come. They can listen. But we're not going to change the menu. And again, it's a topic people don't like to discuss or they feel awkward. But God's law hasn't changed. Well, we're engaged. We're going to get married. Then get married first. Folks, understand me. Uh, I understand people fall and so forth, and we'll talk about that in deliverance. But protect yourself. Be pure. I know we don't have a lot of young people here, but... Young people, protect yourselves, especially what they're teaching in schools these days. It's unreal. And sexual immorality just today as in any day is a heinous crime. And First of all, it's a crime against God. Now let's switch over to this desire. So I'm sure we understand the deed, Right? There's this desire that Jesus is talking about. He's lifting the commandment up. In verse 28 says, But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust, for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, it's a fascinating verse, and I want us to see this, because the Lord forces the self-righteousness and helps us everybody see that they're not holy. The Pharisees saying, we don't do that, we don't commit that sin. But they didn't read Psalm 66, verse 18, where it says, if you have iniquity in your heart, God don't hear. Just like when we have hate or anger in our heart, God says, I don't want your worship. Don't come over here and offer me sacrifices. Go back and be reconciled. God is always examining the sin of the heart internal, what's internal, what's inside us, that's what breaks our relationship with God. Not necessarily 
what we do externally. And I want us to look at several words here. When it says, and clarify something, when it says looks, looks is referring to a continuous process of looking. It does not refer to involuntary glance or unintentional, but repeating, gazing. And then he says to lust for, that indicates the goal of that action of looking is to fulfill that lustful desire. So Jesus is speaking here of intentional looking with the purpose of lusting, right? See a beautiful woman walk by, you just look and you continue, but if a beautiful woman walks by and you're doing this, that's what he's talking about. Or a man, I don't know. Jesus is speaking of a man or a woman who watches also, we could say, X-rated material. Pornography, movies, or goes to the beach to look at the woman in their bikinis. They have this goal to do those things, and they're looking at a woman lustfully. But the thing is, that's not what causes the man to commit adultery in his heart. It's not lustful looking that's causing us to commit it. But it's the sin in the heart that is causing us to look. I hope that makes sense. Lustful looking is expression of the heart that's already immoral and adulterous. The heart is the soil where the seeds of sin are embedded and they begin to grow. Right? That's why the Bible says the heart is wicked. Who can know it? So Jesus is not speaking of some unexpected, unavoidable exposure to sexual temptation. Uh, You know, when you see a woman dressed a certain way or something like that, Satan will try to tempt you. He will send you thoughts in your head. Hey, look over there. Look at that. But there is no sin if the temptation is resisted and you turn your gaze somewhere else. Right? In continuing to look in order to satisfy this lustful desire, that's what Jesus is condemning because it gives evidence of a sinful heart, sin in your heart. David was not at fault. We know all the story with David, right? He was not at fault seeing Bathsheba up there on the rooftop bathing. He couldn't help noticing her. Get on the rooftop, she's right there. He was not at fault to that point. She was in his plain view. He could have looked away and put this experience out of his mind. If he simply caught a glimpse of the woman, he wouldn't be guilty. But he did more than this, didn't he? Let's look at Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 2. Then it happened one evening that David arose from bed. First of all, there's so much I can say about this. He's not where he's supposed to be doing, and it's daytime. He's, he's laying in bed, riding around, but that's a different topic of discussion. And he walked on the roof of the king's house. Nothing wrong there. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. 
nothing wrong yet. But then it says, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. You see, his glance turned into a gaze. He ogled the woman, looking her up and down, right? He knew there was someone. Why didn't he just walk back? He started thinking about what he liked to do with her, lusting after what he wants to do with and lust after her. And the apostle Peter in 2 Peter 2.14 says, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. And folks, it's being careful what we see has never been more important than today. With technology and all those things, you're going to be window shopping even if you don't want to window shop, right? Commercials on television consistently use sex to sell their products, right? They're always trying to put some filth, even like innocent filth, into commercials. Two guys holding a baby or two women. Some, and what it's doing with the next generations and generations to come in their minds, it's going to become, and it's going to happen, folks. Be prepared for it. It's going to become acceptable. It's going to be like, so what? So what? And that's what the devil wants. Advertisers have discovered that sex sells. And it's funny how they use it to sell all these products that have nothing to do with nothing, right? You've seen it. Maybe beer, that's fine. Toothpaste, cereal. Jake from State Farm, right? That he's cheating on his wife. What are you wearing, Jake from State Farm? It might be funny, but when you take a step back and look from, it, from God's point of view, it's perverted. And we should be aware of those things that are happening around us. Porn has become norm. It's the greatest danger today. And because of technology, because of iPhones, Androids, and all that stuff, you can, kids can just type it in and that's it. All these images will pop up. It's a powerful source of pornography. And you see what makes the internet so dangerous? It's anonymous. Nobody knows. Nobody sees. It's accessible, affordable. Right? All the kids have iPhones and so forth. And it's becoming more of a need than just a luxury. Back in the day, cell phones were a luxury, but... You know, we're debating, should we be getting Sela's cell phone now? Because I, sometimes I need to text her at school. It's acceptable at school to receive a text message. I couldn't even have a pager. Somebody sees it, they take it, my mom and dad got to go pick it up. And I read an article, we don't talk about porn addiction or any kind of addictions in church, again, because we're so, I don't know, uncomfortable with it. But it's a serious issue in the church. Not just the unbelieving world, folks. Think about it. When you see a pastor going down, what's he going down for usually? Sexual immorality or some kind of money, money thing, right? Sexual immorality. All those things. It's happening in the church. Because it's the sin in the heart. It's no longer, you know, we used to think the Catholic Church and so forth, you know, we point out all those priests and molestation and so forth. What's happening in Southern Baptist Convention? What's happening in our churches? But you see, 
this article went to explain that when someone is addicted to porn, their addiction is as strong as somebody that's addicted to cocaine. And that's the reason more and more men struggle with it, because they think nobody's going to know. They look at it, and they become addicted. You know, it went to say that with old porn, meaning like magazines and so forth, once you viewed it, you kind of consumed it. You chewed up the flavor out of the gum. But it says that can't be done with the Internet. The gum never runs out of flavor. There's a new piece of flesh that waits behind every old one. And the reason it's so addicting, because the expectation leads you to go further and further and further. And as long as there's more to come, you'll keep looking. And as long as there's more to see, people will keep looking, including, folks, Christians. Don't be fooled. Like, all, oh, this is only for the world. And some men are scared to share those things or even come to pastors for counseling or think about or discuss those things. But it's a serious issue that needs to be taken care of biblically and maybe even some other counseling involved. And you know, in schools, folks, my brother's out in California, they're teaching kids that, you know, this safe sex, that pornography and looking at it is a legitimate uh, outlet to release tensions. Well, if you believe that, then you can believe you can treat drug addicts with drugs. You can put out fire with gasoline. You can do all those things. You can treat alcoholics with alcohol. You can't do those things. It denigrates women, damages relationships, and first of all, for Christian, it destroys the man's spiritual ability to lead his home. How deadly is this lust? Well, let's look what happened to David when we have this internal desire. The more he looked at the woman, right? Says she was beautiful to behold. The more he wanted her. And the sin was starting to take control and David begins to fantasize. He found himself unable to turn away. She was beautiful. And she ain't your wife, is she? And folks, I want to tell you something. Sexual sin, sexual immorality is not a sin we're told to fight. If you read the scriptures carefully, it tells you to flee. It tells you to flee. The way to escape it is on your two legs. King's Highway, you start running. Isn't that what Joseph did? It's a sin we're told to flee. You just get out there and start running. David should have saturated himself with the absence on the rooftop. Should have left. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, says, flee also youthful lusts. And he says, but pursue righteousness. Flee lusts. He's writing this to Timothy. Timothy is a pastor. You see, nobody's excluded from these temptations. And Romans 13, 14 tells us, 
but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, put it on. And make no provisions for the flesh to fulfill its lust. But David began to think about how to satisfy the desires of his sinful nature. And look what he did in 2 Samuel 11.3. So he's looking at this woman. Doesn't know who she is. So he sends out a request and inquired about the woman. And someone told him it's Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uri, the Hitty. Hittite, sorry. You see, there's a key two words, if you put it correctly, that should have just ended the whole debate or dislust. It says, the wife. The whole matter should have been ended right there. She was a married woman. So, given any further thought or any lustful desires is out of the question for a man of God. But David felt like he had to have her. It became an obsession. And this is the way lust works. That's the way lust works. He could have came back three days later after her because it's always in his mind and it's in his heart. It becomes an obsession. It takes power of its own. You might not act right there and then, but you will act a couple of days later or a week later. You feel it's pooling deeper and deeper, and then you're powerful. You're powerless, I'm sorry, to resist. And you know, David abused his power a little bit. He was a king. He can do whatever he wants. He conquered. He had things that people only dream of. And if he wanted a woman, all he had to do was take it. What are you going to do? And in verse 4, it says, David sent messengers. You see how lust works? Inquired. He was warned that it's a wife. But he says, sent messengers and took her. She came to him and lay with her. She was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. Good deal. Sends her back. By the time David was finished with Bathsheba, her husband was dead. I'm not going to read the entire story. He wasn't guilty only of adultery, but lying, stealing, murdering. And for a while, he seemed like he would get away with it. Nobody's saying anything to him. But folks, a lot of times we just look around, but we forget to look up, don't we? And in 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven, it says this. And when her mourning was over, this is already when the kid died. David sent out and brought to her to her house. And she became his wife. Now, he killed her husband and all that stuff. The baby died. She became pregnant. So he takes her in. But look at that last sentence in the verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You see that? So if you displease the Lord, it doesn't matter who you please. And Christians often seem to think that we can sin with impunity. There's no, no consequences. It's all about grace, right? We engage in a little sexual fantasy. Why not? We'll take a look at some pornography. Who doesn't? At first, it doesn't seem 
harmful. And again, with technology and all these things, nobody will ever know. Right? But God always knows. And why Solomon warned his warns us in Proverbs 5, verses 20 and 21. He says, For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? And then in verse 21, he says, For the ways of men are before the eyes of the Lord. All your ways are before the eyes of the Lord. And he ponders all his paths. I read about a bank robber who went to rob a bank and he wasn't very experienced and or didn't think it through. He was nervous and he hands the teller a note and says, give me all your money, this is a stick-up. So the teller wrote back and said, fix your tie, stupid. They're taking you a picture. And that's the way God is. We don't think God is taking our picture. There's a candid camber that's grinding away, and we need to understand that light and darkness, doesn't matter what it is, are light to God. You know, one time I was sitting around Muslim friends, and you know Muslims don't drink, and they put vodka in a tea kettle. Why you put vodka in a tea kettle? Well, if God looks at us, he thinks we're drinking tea. That's the way we treat God, right? I said, what kind of God is that? We think God doesn't see. In Psalm 139, verse 12 says, Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as day. The darkness and light are both alike to you. God sees everything we do with our bodies. He sees our heart better than we do. God sees everything. So what we look at, Think about desire, what we touch. And we need to understand, folks, even if you're saved, you're still going to have to give account on how you lived your life. And from the moment the king decided to act on his lust, and this is another thing we don't think about, even our life here became a tragic series of disappointments, right? Lost almost everything he had worked for, so hard to gain. The baby died. David's family was torn apart. One of the things that were happening inside his family, rape, incest. His kingdom was divided. His beloved son Absalom rose against him, right? He even went and had sex with his, David's wives. That's all the consequences of those things. He brought shame to Father's house. Why? Because in 2 Samuel 12.10, God was displeased what he has done in his eyes, meaning David, what he did in the eyes of the Lord. And look what he says in verse 10 of 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. That's the consequence. Because you have despised me, and you have taken the wife of your head to be your wife. It's interesting that he didn't say you commit adultery and all those things and all the sins and murder. He says, you have despised me. 
Folks, we need to understand that sin is costly. Sin does not pay. It's like a credit card. You enjoy now, but you're going to pay later. It costs. And the devil is very clever at hiding the price tag when he's dangling these temptations in front of you. Right? Let me ask you a question. David, if he would have saw like a little thing pops up and says, hey, David, if you do these, here's all the consequences. I'm pretty sure David would plead like, she ain't worth it. Think about it. If Eve saw the consequence of her sin just by eating some fruit that God said, didn't eat it, and the sin is not the fruit, it's disobedience to God. If she saw the fall of mankind, the creatures, everything, the earth, the, the childbearing, all these, the wars and all that stuff happening, I think she would just threw that fruit backwards. And that's what we don't think about. We're in the moment trying to satisfy our flesh, and we don't think about the consequences. We don't think about the consequences that it may cause our family, our wife, our children. And when you do those things, man, you say your mom is not, you're saying to your kids, you want, your mom is not, I don't love her, she's not worth it. Same thing for the mom. And most importantly, you're telling the kids, I don't care about you. Because all I care about is satisfying my own lustful desire. Do you think it was worth it? All of us probably nod our heads. But what about your personal lustful desires. Are they worth it? We're all guilty of it. There's a price tag to pay. And what are you willing to lose for it? And folks, lust has many, many unhappy consequences. It even will cost you maybe even in this life or the next. Look what it says in Proverbs 6, verses 25 and 26. Solomon writes and says, Do not lust after her beauty in your heart. There's a lot of beautiful women. But he says, Do not lust for her beauty in your heart. Not let her allure you with her eyelids. Hmm. No, no, no. And then in verse 26, he says, But for the means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. The thing I love about the Bible, folks, and the more you study it, not only tells you the sins, but then it also tells you the consequences. It tells you the price so you can make a decision not like the devil. And giving into lust is like playing with fire. You're going to get burned, Right? Proverbs 6.27 says, Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burnt? And the worst of all, this sexual sin brings us under the wrath of God. And Proverbs 6.32 says, Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. David was lacking understanding at that point in time. And the illustration of David, man after God's heart, tells us that any of us 
is not exempt from such sins. Now, we also, again, it's the sin of the heart, the desire. How do we sin in this way? Not just looking at somebody lusting. You'd be making inappropriate jokes, sexual jokes about a woman, or saying some inappropriate things, right? You may be calling somebody at work honey. Don't call somebody honey if you're married. Save that for your wife, right? But the thing is, we have a tolerance for these inward sins than outwards. We're less concerned with these sins of the heart. Why? Because no one else knows them, right? What if we had a gift that we knew everything that somebody ever thought? Would you want somebody looking at your heart and examining it? No, we keep that inside, right? Only you know, and God knows you. But we're so concerned just with the outward, the inward, nobody knows. But Jesus is saying here the inward flaws are just as fatal. And you know, the fact that David had brought her to his chambers, that's not where the act of adultery actually happened. It already happened when he's expressing his immoral desire that already existed in his heart. And that's the process that illustrates Jesus' main point in this passage. Folks, no matter where it ends, maybe end up like David, you actually committed. But it doesn't matter when it ends. When an evil is sown in your heart and mind and heart, that's why God judges. Now, again, he's using an illustration of a man as an example. But it does not exclude women. Women are equally successful for the lustful looking. But what would he need to do? Job says in 31.1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? Other translations say, look upon the virgin. Why, Job? You just window shopping. You're just looking, right? He's not saying he's committing a deed. He says, I made a covenant with my eyes. I won't look at a young woman. Why? Because he knows the sin begins in the heart, and that was deserving of God's punishment, looking at a woman lustfully, just as physically committing adultery with her. So he did determine in advance to guard himself and making a pact with his eyes that he's going to turn his gaze elsewhere. You see, just as our adulterous heart ponders itself in advance, godly hearts protect themselves in advance. Psalm 119, verses 37 38 says, Turn away my eyes from looking at the worthless things, And revive me in your way. Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. Protect yourself in advance. You know, James, the book of James says, you know, pray so you won't enter in temptation. That means you pray before you enter temptation. We start praying when it's already too late. 
right? And again, Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, says, flee youthful lust. He's instructing him just like Job. We must make a covenant with our eyes and every other part of our bodies to pursue purity. So what our Lord is saying here, these two examples that we looked at, you have to deal with the heart. The heart is the issue. And you see, when you're a believer in Christ, and the devil wants you to forget these things, you have a new heart. Christ gave you a new heart. But folks, the sinfulness that's still there sometimes raises up, doesn't it? And it's ugly. Satan comes to tempt, but I hope you made a covenant with your eyes to turn away, and that what he leads into in verses 29 to 30, that's the deliverance part. Deliverance, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. You know, at first glance, you look at it, it's kind of out of place. It's, he's talking about the issue of the heart, and then he's telling me to pluck out an eye. Well, don't blind people lust. Don't people with one arm one leg, lust. You see, if you plucked out your right eye and had a lust, lustful heart, your left eye would be double duty. You'd be doing the duty for both of your eyes. You'd be doing the boot duty for both of your eyes. So go wild, making up for the lost right eye. And if you got rid of your right hand, your left hand would be doing double duty trying to make up for the right. But Jesus is not saying that there's a physical remedy for a heart problem. It doesn't say pluck out your eye, right? It doesn't say we don't want to be armless or blind. You don't see that in the Bible, Christians walk around. But you see to a Jew, the right eye, it's a, uh, a symbolic thing, a right eye or a right hand, that was the better of the two. So what he's simply saying, there's nothing too precious to eliminate from your life if it's going to cause your heart to be indulged in this adulterous desires. That's what he's saying. He's saying we should be willing to give up whatever is necessary, even the most cherished things we possess, if it's not helping us to protect ourselves from evil. He repeats this in Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9, says, If you hand and foot causes you to sin... Cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eyes cause you to sin, pluck it out, cast it out from you. It's better for you to enter into the life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell. What this is telling us, folks, sin must be dealt with radically. Sin must be dealt with immediately. Diagnose the problem, says pluck it out. 
What was David? Pluck it out. You get out of the rooftop. Can't be prideful and say, well, I'm the king. She should get off the rooftop. Well, she's not the one that's being tempted, is she? Get out of there. Flee. Immediate diagnosis. You know, there's a Chinese proverb, and I'm sure some of you heard it. There's a good dog and a bad dog fighting, and which one wins? The one you feed the most. The one you feed the most. What are you feeding? Your lust? You're giving it? Playing it out in your mind? Paul writes to Colossians in 3.5, says, Therefore put to death your members which are on earth, fornication and cleansedness, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is adultery. If we don't control what is on around us, where we go, what we do, what company we keep, conversations we have, they will soon control us. Can I give you an example, and I'm sure I'm going to hear about from my wife later on. But sometimes, you know, I'm busy, and they like to go for walks. This time they said they're going to go for a walk in the mall. So I say, okay, go walk from the mall. You better not buy nothing. No one to shop. Okay? So they go. They come back. Say, how was your walk? How was your walk in the mall? Well, we didn't go. I say, where did you go? We wanted to get some ice cream. Okay, why didn't you go to the mall like you said? Well, you see, Macy's had these boots that I wanted. And I knew if I go to the mall, I'm going to get them. Now, the key word wanted, not need. We have rules in our house between wants and needs. So I knew if I go, I'm going to get them. Then I'm going to come home. And you being the unreasonable man that you are, you're going to argue, going to tell me to return them. So I just didn't want to put up with the fuss and the mess. So that's why we just went and got ice cream. See, that's what I'm talking about. That's the radical thing. You know you have an alcohol issue while you're going to the bar with friends or going to a party or things like that. If you know you have lust in your heart and somebody's throwing a bachelor party and inviting some strippers or whatever, why are you going? Don't go. Don't go. Don't matter what other people say about you. It just matters what God says about you. So, but I want to understand that, you also understand that if we even get rid of those harmful influences or we avoid them, I need you to understand that it still does not change your corrupt heart. Okay? The act of outward or forsaking whatever is harmful, it does reflect a heart that thirsts and, and thirsts and wants righteousness as we talked about in Beatitudes. So not necessarily will make your heart pure by avoiding these things, but it shows that you want to you avoid those things. I want to do the right thing. I want righteousness. And you see, Jesus really sets these impossible standards of his kingdom and his righteousness because, folks, we're all guilty of these things. At one point or another, 
We all have sinned that way, right? Doesn't matter when or how. And the Bible says if you're guilty of one, breaking one God's laws, and here we could have been fine if we didn't murder outwardly, if we didn't commit adultery, you can try to control that. But when it becomes to the inward, it says you're just as guilty. So if you broke just one of these things, if you were angry with your brother, you hated him, or had lust in your heart, you're guilty before the entire thing, the entire law. And the impossibility that Jesus says really has a purpose to make us aware we can't rely on our own righteousness. He's been saying it to them in the Old Testament. He says all your righteousness is like what? Filthy rags, right? Dirty rags. And then the second part is to seek his righteousness. We read in Matthew 6, 33, where it says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So let me end by saying this. Perhaps there's been a time of moral impurity in your life. Maybe it wasn't outwardly, maybe it's lustful, less than your heart. There's good news. There's good news. We have a Savior who can take all the broken pieces, maybe some even broken pieces of your home, broken pieces of your heart. As I always say, Jesus is the only guy that can put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And Jesus is the only one. You know, in the book of John, chapter 8, we see a woman taken in adultery. And she was brought to Jesus. I was wondering where the guy was. Because if you read the law, it says the man and the woman. So now only they were saying, hey, dude, don't commit adultery. That's fine. But then they had a double standard. Right? It's the woman's fault. And sometimes I hear sermons where they say, well, the woman causes me to lust because she was dressed a certain way. Folks, can I tell you something? I understand dressing appropriately and so forth. But lust has always existed. You know, it doesn't matter if the woman is dressed in those dresses that you can only see the eyes. There's still lust, right? Think about how they were dressed in the Old Testament times. But what were they showing? But yet they still had to lust. So don't tell me somebody else caused you to lust or use excuses for your own sins. God's not going to accept your alibis for your sins. It's you. She causes you to lust, and you see it, then turn away, right? Why do you keep looking? And Jesus said in John 8, 7, says, So when they continued asking him and raised himself and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And then you hear the thud of rocks falling on the grass. And then we read there, it says, all dispersed, and all of them went away. And verses 10 and 11 says, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw that no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? No one condemned you. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. And this is what we need to remember. 
go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. We all have different temptations. It must not be sexual lust. It could be food. It could be something else. But God is willing to forgive. And if we go back to the story of David, you know, the thing I like about David is you don't see him committing the same sin twice. You don't. In this whole affair that there was only one thing that he did do right, he admitted his sin. And this is where most of us struggle. Why? Because outwardly we don't do that sin, but inwardly we're just saying, you give, make up excuses, right? Oh, I, won't, I won't do it again and, and so forth. I won't look at it. It was just a look. You need to realize that you already committed adultery. And commit and admit that sin. God loved David, and out of his mercy and amazing grace, he sent a prophet to him, Nathan, to confront him about this sin. Because, again, think about it. This is, he committed the sin, all these things happen, and he's continued living like he's living. Think about it. If the baby had to be born, right, to die and so forth, that's already been at least nine months, right? There's no confessing of sin on David's part. So he looked around, and you know, maybe a couple of people knew, not a lot of people knew, we're just going to move on with my life. God says, uh-uh. So he sins because he loves us. He's chastising us. So if we're giving away with sin, then I, I doubt you're his child. There'll be, there'll be consequences. And David says to Nathan after Nathan presents a little story to him. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, he says, And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Do you see grace in the Old Testament? What was the law? It didn't exclude kings. What was the law? He needs to be stoned along with Bathsheba. Now, there are many lessons to learn from David's interview. You know, it, it, you know we, we cannot hide our sins, folks. Sin always has consequences. We talked about that. His whole family, his household, his kingdom. And we learned that because sexual immorality really thrives on secrecy. And when we're addicted to these things, we need open assistance from believers. But the problem is, too, it's hard because a lot of believers like to gossip instead of help. But we need each other to help us to turn away from these sins or whatever struggles you have. That's why we have the church. And we also need to learn, folks, when we do sin, you need to go to God, confess it, and repent of it. And then what did Jesus say? Go and sin no more. Don't condemn yourself. Sometimes, all right, it happened. How are you going to deal with it going forward? Don't try to hide it. Admit it. Admit it, right? God knows it. Admit your sins. And his full confession is recorded in Psalm 51. You can read that. 
And he began crying out for God to forgive him. He made a full, open confession. He didn't hide it. Then what happened? God had mercy. And God does that with every sinner who truly repents and goes and sin no more. But David still had to face the consequences of his sin. His sin was forgiven. His guilt was taken away. Because at the cross, we find that sacrifice cleanses us from all guilt and power to start living again for Christ. But if we, folks, if we're hiding your sin, if we're not being honest with ourselves that we have an issue, right? Sometimes we hide it and we say we, we rely on our own strength, on our own, own resources to defeat some sin and get them to tell you you're going to fail. You're going to fail. Cry out to God. Go to a room, close the door, and say, God, I confess this sin. It's not new to you. You see it. I confess it. Help me by the strength of your Holy Spirit to get rid of it. I don't want to have these desires that I have, but thank you for showing to me that they exist. Cry out to help. Get a Christian friend that will not judge you but will help you overcome those things. And folks, the most important thing I can tell you, and sometimes people teach that if you're a Christian, you don't need to repent anymore. Folks, every time since I came to Jesus, I have a lot more things to be repenting of, right? As you grow and you walk. But we read in 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he imputes his righteousness to us. Isn't that a good verse? Isn't that good promise? You can take that to the bank. If you truly repent, he will cleanse you from all sins. Let's pray.